The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Do not fret because of evil doers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers, for they will wither quickly like grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him and He will do it. And He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as noonday. This I recall to mind and therefore have hope. It is of the Lord's mercies we are not consumed. His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Before we begin our study this evening, we, of course, need to make sure we're in fellowship, ready to study God's Word, so we always have a few moments of silent prayer. If you need to use 1 John 1, 9, make sure we're in fellowship, filled with the Spirit, ready to study His Word and to focus on the truth this evening. Let's bow our heads together. After a few moments, I'll open in prayer. Father, we do thank you that we have this privilege and opportunity in this free country to gather together and to study your word because we know that it is only on the basis of truth that we have real freedom. This nation has been a bulwark of freedom and throughout the world for over 200 years. And because of that freedom, there have been many opportunities for missionaries to go out and take the truth throughout the world. We have been a bastion of strength for the nation Israel. We have always been a nation that has avoided anti-Semitism. We have always been a friend of the Jew. Father, we pray for this nation now in this time of where we have undergone this insidious attack from nameless, faceless cowards who hide behind the acts of terrorism. Father, we pray for wisdom for our nation. We pray wisdom for our leaders, for the president. We pray for their safety, their protection, because they are as we know, targets. We pray for our leaders in the financial world as well as in the military world that they might have the wisdom to make wise decisions in this time of adversity, this time of testing, and that this nation might not uh, succumb to emotional reaction but might take this opportunity to reflect upon itself, to recognize what the real priorities are, and that this might be indeed a clarion call that turns us from the self-absorbed narcissism that has characterized us for the last 20 or 30 years, and that there might be many who will use this as an opportunity to reflect upon the priorities in their life and turn from their self-absorbed daily lives to the God of the Bible and redemption in Jesus Christ. Father, we pray as we study your word this evening and look at at it for comfort and understanding of these events, that you would comfort us, 
through the Holy Spirit and through doctrine, that we might be relaxed despite all of the chaos that swirls around us. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. Though it might come as a surprise to many people and perhaps to some of you, life is not about you. It doesn't revolve around your kids, their future, your 501k plan, your portfolio, hobbies, job, or even your emotional well-being. History is the outworking of the plan of God. It turns on two axes. One is God's plan for Israel. The other is God's plan for the believer. In the Old Testament, as in the church age, as goes the believer, so goes the nation. The believer, whether in Israel in the Old Testament or the believer in the church age now, is the key to blessing and cursing in any national entity. It's not about the unbelievers. It's about the believers. This unprovoked tragic attack that occurred in the United States yesterday on September 11, 2001, did not come in a vacuum. If you know history, as we have learned history here in our study of Judges on Sunday morning, our study of Daniel on Wednesday night, we know that history is the outworking of God's plan, that history is moved through doctrine at its core, what people believe. Whether they accept or reject doctrine is the key to what happens in history. It's nothing else. There may be secondary factors of economics, social factors, military factors, but the key in human history is how the believer responds to Bible doctrine. Its acceptance or its rejection is the key to blessing and cursing in human history. What happened yesterday is a wake-up call to this nation. But first of all, to every believer. The principle is, as goes the believer, so goes the nation. What happened yesterday, I think, is a culmination of years of negative volition, superficial Christianity, and playing with doctrine that has occurred in so-called Christianity in this country for the last 30 or 40 years. The superficiality of most Christians is is almost beyond, beyond belief. As goes the believer, so goes the nation. Just as in the believer's life, suffering comes for either blessing or cursing. The same is true in the life of a nation. We think back. Many have compared yesterday's horrendous attack to Pearl Harbor. When Pearl Harbor came, it was a time of adversity. It was, again, an unprovoked attack by our nation's enemies. But it came at a different generation, a generation that had gone through the adversity of the Depression, a, a, a generation that was still characterized in the churches by sound doctrine. There was still a love for truth. There was still a belief in absolutes in this nation. There was still a, a firm conviction of establishment principles that characterized this nation. That is no longer true. What happened in 1941 was, was in many ways suffering for blessing. But what has happened now is suffering for cursing. This nation is under the judgment of God because the believers in this nation treat doctrine in a cavalier, light manner. It is good if it is convenient. If the believers in this nation continue on their self-indulgent, emotive, subjective, psychologized course, there will be no relief. What happened yesterday will 
be just a drop in the bucket. Things of that sort will occur again and again, as indeed they have. This isn't the first. The first attack was the bombing that occurred in 1993, the attempt to uh, blow up the World Trade Center then. And then there was the attack on the coal last, uh, last year. And there have been other bombings, the bombings of embassies. This is just another, and it gets worse, and it gets worse because believers in this nation do not recognize that they are the salt. And the salt has lost its savor because they have been captivated by false doctrines. They have been captured by the same self-indulgent trends of the world around them, and they do not make doctrine number one priority in their life. I want you to remember that it is not about the unbelievers. It is not about the uh, pagans in our society. It is not about that at all. It is not even because we as believers don't witness enough or don't give enough or don't pray enough, despite the fact that so many thousands and thousands of believers have been praying that silly prayer of Jabez for the last Six or eight months, we still got attacked yesterday. This didn't happen because of abortion. Some silly, superficial Christian got on an interview yesterday and said, well, this was God's judgment because we've killed so many unborn babies. Well, that just shows how little they know about Bible doctrine. It is not because of our leniency to criminals. See, all of these things are wrong. It's not because we have coddled the drug users and the drug sellers and the smugglers who addict our children to crack cocaine and heroin and everything else. It's not about the internal corruption in our government and the internal corruption of our people. It's not about organized crime or unorganized crime. It's not because of the feminization of men or the masculinization of women. It's not because we've legitimized sodomy and we've validated sexual perversion. Not that these things aren't eating away at the core of our culture and destroying our country, but those are merely the symptoms of the problem. They are not the problem. The problem is that believers in this nation have rejected Bible doctrine. Believers treat doctrine lightly, so God is treating this nation lightly. These are the symptoms that are outlined in Romans chapter 1, of the judgment of God on any culture, on any group of humanity that has exchanged the worship of the incorruptible God for the worship of the creature and creaturely things. We fail to worship by means of the Spirit and truth. There's so much distortion about the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit today, that very few people even have a clue as to what it is about. Most of the people who talk about the Holy Spirit don't have the first clue as to what the Bible teaches about the doctrines of the filling of the Holy Spirit and the indwelling. In fact, they confuse and uh, conflate all of them. We are to worship by means of the Holy Spirit, and that is contrasted to worship by means of the flesh. We are to worship by means of the Spirit and by means of truth. That means Bible doctrine is at the core. It is not about dancing in the Spirit. It's not about exorcisms. It's not about healing. It's not about praise and worship. What church is all about is doctrine, 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 and that's got to be number one in everybody's life. And when it's not, we set the country up for judgment because when the believer is not the salt of the earth, when the believer doesn't know any doctrine, 
when they're so busy arguing about this and that and the other thing, and even among theologians that respected what have been traditionally conservative universities, they're debating the legitimacy of things like the true omniscience of God today, the apostasy that runs rampant through evangelicalism just reveals the core problem in this nation. The the overwhelming majority of believers in this country have violated the principle of 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world, which, as we have studied, is the cosmic system. It's a way of thinking. It's a philosophy of life. Do not love the world or the things in the world. We are to love the Word, not the world. We are to love the Lord, not the self. We are to be occupied with Christ, not occupied with our passions or problems or our our own agenda. Or to gain perspective on what is going on here in this nation, we need to turn back to what happened in ancient Israel in the seventh, late 7th century B.C. I want you to turn in your Bibles with me to Jeremiah chapter 26. Jeremiah chapter 26, and we are going to see parallels between what happened in the nation Israel before they went out under the fifth cycle of discipline and what is going on in our nation today. There are many parallels. Remember, though, there's a big difference. Israel was God's covenant nation. We are merely a client nation. That's why I said history turns on one axis related to God's plan for Israel. What happened yesterday may turn out to have little to do with the believer. I think it has a lot to do with the believer because God's plans are multifaceted and complex. It has to do with the negative volition of believers in this nation and what God is preparing Israel for, if indeed we are near the end times. Remember, the tribulation is a time of Jacob's trouble, and there will be a returned emphasis to Israel. But even though this is the church age, and even though Israel is not at the forefront of God's plan today, Israel will be the focus of God's plan when the tribulation time comes, and God will be working in and through them. Whether or not Israel is in apostasy does not affect the Abrahamic covenant that God will bless those who bless Israel and God will curse, and there's a strong word for cursing there meaning judgment, those who treat Israel lightly. So we always have to maintain a firm stand against any form of anti-Semitism. But this nation is not a covenant nation in the sense that Israel was. We are not in a covenant legal relationship with Israel. I mean, with God as Israel was. The Mosaic law was given to Israel and Israel alone. But in the church age, God works in and through various nations, and He uses those nations. He raises up empires, as we have seen in our study of Daniel. God raised up empires in order to provide peace in the world so that the gospel can be spread. That runs counter to our modern views of democracy and nations shouldn't conquer other nations. But the truth is that it was under the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome, during the first four centuries of this era, that the gospel went out throughout the world because there was an empire. And then in the last century, under the Pax Britannica, under Britain, where the sun never set on the Union Jack throughout the whole world, the gospel went everywhere the British soldier went. And the gospel went into India, and the gospel went into Pakistan, and the gospel went into China, and the gospel went all over the world. 
And people today react against Western European influence in Christianity, and yet every woman in India ought to get on her knees and, and kiss every Brit that ever came to England, because without them they would still be on the, on the bottom of the food chain in India. It is on, on the basis, almost on the basis of a peace that America as an empire could have established after World War II, that the gospel could have had a tremendous empire, uh, tremendous impact, but we were afraid. We didn't want to be an imperial power. That became a bad word because of liberalism. But because we did not exercise our power rights as the superpower, we failed miserably in post-World War II prosperity. We're reaping some of the benefits of that now. We made bad decisions, and they always come home to haunt us. But in the Old Testament, God had a special nation, a nation that is still His special nation, the nation Israel. And Israel had been warned by God in Leviticus 26 and in Deuteronomy 28 that if Israel disobeyed God, God would discipline them through a successive series of judgments. We call those the five cycles of discipline. They would involve various economic catastrophes and military catastrophes, and by the time they got to the most serious of the cycles, the fifth cycle of discipline, God promised Israel that He would take them out of the land militarily. They would be defeated, and they would be destroyed as a nation, but they would still be His people. And God promised in the midst of all the warnings of the prophets in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, that there would be a restoration. And one of those passages that is warning the nation of the seriousness of their negative volition to doctrine and the consequences is found in Jeremiah chapter 26. But what goes along with this, at the time that this was written, is that there is real hope. God is offering Israel a chance to recover and not go out onto the fifth cycle of discipline. There is always hope. God's principle is if you're still alive, there's still hope, there's still an opportunity to recover. And that's true for the believer. No matter how much you have treated doctrine lightly, there's still the opportunity to recover, confess the sin, move forward and make doctrine number one. It doesn't have to stop now. Deuteronomy, I mean, Jeremiah 26, we read, In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. This places this in 609 B.C. This is Four years before our study of Daniel. This is what precedes Daniel. This is what led up to the capture of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and they're, they're being deported to Babylon. This is the background. This is written during a time of overwhelming tragedy in the nation Israel. Though there were many believers in Israel at the time, the remnant was small. There were very few believers who were positive to doctrine. Most of them had succumbed to the false religious teaching of the priests and the prophets in the land at that time. So the remnant had shrunk to an almost imperceptible level. God, during the time of Josiah, had given them much prosperity. We in this country have gone through much prosperity in the last 30 years. Grace always precedes judgment. During the time of the prosperity of Josiah, the people did not become positive to doctrine. They they thought that that prosperity would go on and that God would always bless them because, after all, they were such a wonderful people. They failed to respond to doctrine, so now through Jeremiah, God is announcing judgment on Israel. We read, In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, the word came from Yahweh, God, the covenant God of Israel, saying, 
Thus says Yahweh, stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah who have come to worship in the Lord's house. All the words that I have commanded you to speak to them. Do not omit a word. The person who teaches doctrine is to be faithful. He is not to be telling people what they want to hear, what entertains them, what makes them feel good about themselves. The person who teaches doctrine needs to preach and teach the unvarnished truth of God's Word, no matter how much it might offend people. Perhaps they will listen. Verse 3, Perhaps they will listen. That means it's hypothetical. They had an opportunity to respond positively to doctrine. They had a chance to turn. Perhaps they will listen. And everyone will turn from his evil way that I may repent of the calamity which I am planning to do to them because of the evil of their deeds. Now here we see two important words that you ought to underline or circle in your Bible. The first is turn. God gives them an opportunity to turn. That's the Hebrew word shuv, which means to change your mind. It means to change from negative volition to positive volition. And they had the opportunity because men are not robots, they have volition. Second, God says about himself that I may repent. That's a bad translation. It's the Hebrew word nacham, which is really an anthropopathism to it. That means that it is expressing something about God's plan and policies in human terms by using a human emotion that God does not actually possess in order to express God's plan and policy. Now, when it says that God repented, we are reminded that in Numbers 23:19 we know that God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of a man that he should repent. And there's the same word, Nacham. God does not change his mind. But here we're seeing that God, what this means anthropopathically is that God would not fulfill his promise of judgment on Israel. He would not take them into the fifth cycle of discipline. They had an opportunity to change history. God has built flexibility into history, and what happens, blessing or cursing, depends on the volition of the believer. Same thing happened under Jonah. Jonah was sent to Assyria to proclaim the gospel. God was going to judge them if they didn't turn back to him, and they responded, and and Assyria survived, Nineveh, and Assyria survived for over 200 years because that generation responded positively to the gospel, and so God withheld his hand of judgment. The same thing can happen to this nation if believers will wake up and quit being so hypersensitive about their own lives, being so self-absorbed with their own uh, lifestyle and everything that they want to do and get their focus back on doctrine and off of self. What was required to reverse this cycle? Look at verse 4. Three things are outlined. And you will say to them, Thus says the Lord, If you will not listen to me, to walk in my law which I have set before you, to listen to the words of my servants the prophets whom I have been sending you, to you again and again, but you have not listened. Then I will make this house like Shiloh, and this city I will make a curse to all the nations of the earth. Three things are required. First of all, listen. This means you have to be in Bible class. It doesn't mean that you go off with some sports event for your kids. It doesn't mean that you stay home and watch TV or watch movies. It doesn't mean that you stay home on Sunday morning. It doesn't mean you go fishing on Sunday morning or whatever it is that distracts you from being in Bible class. Now, there are legitimate reasons for not making a Bible class, and that's why we have tapes 
And that's why we don't charge anything for tapes. So that people can listen to tapes, and I expect, by the way I teach, for people to not only listen to tapes, uh, be in Bible class, but to get the tapes and go home and listen to them two or three times. I keep being told by people that uh, they need to listen to my Bible classes three or four times just to get it. Well, I want you to make sure you get your money's worth. We need to listen. That means there has to be discipline. There has to be a priority to make doctrine the number one thing in life. You don't revolutionize your thinking and reform your thinking as a believer by listening 30 minutes or an hour a day once a week. And that's standard today. The seminaries have all apostatized in the area of pastoral ministry. And the average uh, pastor coming out of seminary thinks all he's going to do is give a 30-minute sermonette for Christianettes once a week, and somehow that's going to change the way people think. That's hogwash. This happened yesterday because of that kind of thinking. And until that's reversed, more things like that are going to happen. First of all, they're to listen. That means to make doctrine the number one priority in your life, not your career, not your kids, not your education, not your retirement, but your spiritual life and your relationship to God is number one. Number two is to walk. That means to apply doctrine. If you will not listen to me, to walk in my law. That means to apply doctrine consistently. Well, you can't apply what you don't know, and you don't know what you don't take the time to sit and study and learn. That demands making it a priority. A believer's job is to make his number one priority his relationship to God. That means revolutionizing his thinking, reforming his thinking completely by Bible doctrine. And we are third to listen to the words of my servants, the prophets. That means we have to submit ourselves to the authority of a pastor-teacher. And we have to sit under the ministry of that pastor-teacher to learn doctrine. That doesn't mean we can't learn from anybody else, but we have to pick a local church, and we have to be committed to that local church and to the ministry of that local church, and we have to make sure that the pastor who is teaching in that local church is accurate, qualified, and fulfills the requirements of 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus 1 to faithfully teach the Word. He has to be trained in the original languages, and he needs to have seminary training. One of the biggest dangers in this life is all the people who think that because they've sat under some pastor-teacher for 10, 15, or 20 years that they know something. You cannot learn exegetical methodology sitting under a pastor. All these guys are doing is going out there, and it's like going to Sam's. You're going to have a dinner party. You're going to have 20 people over to your house. Are you going to go to Sam's and buy a bunch of microwave dinners and come home and cook that for somebody? Present it as yours? No. But that's what a lot of these pastors are doing, because they, and they make serious mistakes in the process. And it's a destruction of this country. No pastor should be ordained and in the pulpit if they have not had at least two years of Hebrew, two years of Greek. You learn things by going to a seminary. Now, there aren't a lot of seminaries that are good to go to. But even if you're going to one of the ones that are failing, you learn in the context of being in a seminary classroom with people you don't agree with how to think. And a pastor has to know how to think, not just how to regurgitate what somebody else told him. We have to listen. We have to walk in application of doctrine. And we have to listen faithfully, consistently to the teaching of of the pastors that God gives us. And the, res- and the warning that God says is, I will make this house like Shiloh. And Shiloh was the temporary residence of the tabernacle before they built the temple. Psalm 78, God said that he abandoned 
Shiloh. And the warning there is that if you do not turn back and become positive to doctrine, then God will abandon you. And that means that God will restrain his protective influence. And that is what has happened. If you listen to these news reports, you will discover that the intelligence agencies and the security agencies of this nation have foiled dozens and dozens and dozens of plots like the one that, that uh, came to fruition yesterday. Why did that one make it? Why were those four airplanes all hijacked simultaneously yesterday morning? Because God pulled back his protective influence. God could have easily said a word and any of those men would have been found out and discovered as they went through the security measures at those airports. The reason they made it was not because they were skillful, not because necessarily because our security measures broke down, although we need to take a hard look at them. As much as I travel, I dread this. I'm wondering how in the world, I mean, I do a lot of work on that airplane with my laptop computer, and I think they're going to ban all carry-ons. It wasn't because those people failed. It was because God pulled back his restraining power and his protective influence over this nation so that something horrible, something unprecedented would take place to wake up this nation. Same thing happened in Israel. They failed. Now, in verses, we look through this section and we see that there's a condemnation on the nation. Verses 7 and 9, uh, the people react to Jeremiah and they want to kill him. See, people don't always like those who speak the truth and teach doctrine. I know I'm going to step on toes with this message and I'm going to break some ankles. Some of you need to have a few ankles broken. Get your priorities back in shape. A lot of believers in this country do. It's amazing what passes for Christianity today. The priests and the prophets, the religious leaders are the ones that lead the attack. See, there's all kinds of religion going on, but there's very little truth. And that's what was happening in Jeremiah's day. So in verses 7 to 9, we see the reaction to Jeremiah, and then in 12 and 13, he repeats the message, the repetition of the message. They have hope. They have a chance. They can turn. There is grace before judgment. There is real hope. We can amend our ways. Believers in this nation can return to doctrine and make doctrine and not entertainment the priority in their churches. They need to get rid of all of these uh, praise and worship bands. They need to quit singing for 45 minutes so the the people's minds are numbed and they can't take in the Word anymore. the the, The greatest toehold that Satan has gotten on the churches in this country is praise and worship music. And any Christian who puts up with it doesn't know a thimble full of doctrine. It needs to be ended. People need to go to church and sit for an hour, an hour and a half, and listen to the Word of God and exchange their human viewpoint for divine viewpoint. But they don't want to do that. See, we become lazy. We become self-absorbed and self-indulgent. It's the failure of the believers in this nation that have brought about the catastrophes that we see. First of all, because they have failed to make doctrine the number one priority in their life. Second, they have failed to understand and implement establishment truth. We have failed to understand that the key purpose of national government is twofold, to provide for protection against foreign enemies and to protect our citizens from criminals on the inside. We are into all these socialistic giveaway programs. Everybody wants to know what I'm going to get from Social Security, what I'm going to get from Medicare, 
what I'm going to get from all the handouts from the government. That doesn't matter. We need to get on the horn to our representatives and senators and tell them to get off of that and put all the money into security, both law enforcement and the military, and forget the handouts. See, we've forgotten the purpose of this country, and believers are involved, and they're concerned about all these other things, and what's happened is we've gotten our focus. You know, it's the old rule in baseball. What's the rule? Keep your eye on the ball. We don't have our eye on the ball anymore. It's on everything else. And the ball is the government's role is to protect us. And so we've allowed presidents and we've allowed politicians to denude the military of its ability to protect us and to take money away from them. So we've opted for socialism and handouts and a small military, feeding the masses and fueling their insatiable selfish lusts instead of protecting our own freedoms. The third way we failed. We failed to understand the cosmic system and to avoid it. Most Christians think the cosmic system has something to do with what they do or how they dress and the music they listen to. Well, it may have some impact on that. That's minor. That's less than 2% of what worldliness is all about. Worldliness is satanic thinking. It's arrogance, number one. Satan wanted to be like God. It is self-centeredness. It starts with arrogance. We're in self-absorption, self-indulgence, self-justification, and finally self-deception. We live in a self-deceived nation that feeds us through the media, sordid entertainment for news and ignores the realities of a hostile world. We're filled with cotton candy and lurid stories about personalities and celebrities. And news for the last ten years has been dominated first by one personality like O.J. Simpson, then Monica Lewinsky, and now Chandra Levy and Gary Condit. We just can't get away from it. We don't get hard news. When was the last time you heard that in the last year two million blacks were killed by a Muslim-led government in the Sudan, and six to eight million more are being killed right now. Yet no one indicts the Muslim leaders in the Sudan for war crimes. Yet when Slobodan Milosevic killed 200 Muslims, he's indicted as a war criminal and is now in The Hague awaiting trial. 300,000 Catholics were killed in the last year by Muslims in the island country of East Timor, but nobody says a thing. You never heard of it, did you? Muslims can get away with murder. The Nazis wondered why it was such a big deal to slaughter Jews when nobody said a thing when the Muslim governments in Turkey slaughtered one million Greeks in a war in the 1920s and killed one and a half million Armenian Christians before that. But nobody brought the Muslims up on war crimes trials. What about the fact that in the last 10 or 15 years we saw a war between Iran and Iraq Fomented by Saddam Hussein, over a million Muslims were killed by other Muslims, and yet nobody brought Saddam Hussein up on war crimes trial. We're on the news have we seen mention the fact that three and a half million Syrian Christians who live in northwest Iraq have been systematically exterminated by the Iraqi government over the last five years. See, we're painted a picture that the Muslims are just another religion. Americans are so secularized that we have lost sight of the fact that for the rest of the world, especially the Islamic world, religion is reality. What we have done is divorce religion from reality, so it has no impact on our day-to-day life, decision-making, or priorities, or politics. 
And yet in the rest of the world, religion is reality. It is their politics. It's everything. And as far as Islam is concerned, we are a Christian nation. Believer or unbeliever doesn't matter to them. We're a Christian nation and therefore, because of what the Koran says, we are the enemy and we are to be exterminated along with the Jews. We react to yesterday's events as if it is some new horror. Well, you know, it's like the old story. You've heard the joke. The man comes up to a beautiful woman and he says, uh, Would you go to bed with me for $5 million? The woman says, Sure, sure. The guy says, Well, would you go to bed with me for $5? And she indignantly says, Of course not. What do you think I am? The man says, well, we've already established that. We're just dickering over the price. See, in 1993, six people were killed by an Islamic bomber who tried to blow up the World Trade Center, and thousands of people were injured. Last year, the coal was blown up. In between, we had embassies blown up. But we didn't react. What does it take? 10, 20, 30, 40,000 casualties before we react? Well, that's because it's emotional reaction It's not a reaction from a core of moral character. And what happens when you react from emotion is before long that emotion will blow away. And then we'll just slip back into business as usual. Somehow it's too difficult. We've already heard it on the news media. I heard it this morning interviewing people. Well, what are we going to do? How are we going to find out who the enemy is? Well, they might be buried inside Afghanistan. They might be inside Iraq. If we go after them, we'll start a war. Oh, how terrible. You see, already we're beginning to crawfish and so are cowardice because in a climate of moral relativism, there is no moral courage. Because in moral relativism, there are no absolutes. And when there are no absolutes, there's nothing worth dying for. Maybe news to you, but when there's nothing worth dying for, there's nothing worth living for. And you become a prisoner of your own relativism and doomed to failure. And that's exactly where we are as a nation. We're so self-absorbed in America that we have no clue that the rest of the world... I get on the Internet and listen to Israeli newscasts. I get on the Internet and try to read foreign newspapers. And we're so self-absorbed in America that we have no clue that the rest of the world thinks we're on the verge of World War II. We're too concerned about hearing about Chandra Levy and Gary Condit. Tragic as that is, that's not news. That's just pandering to our sick sense of entertainment. We are self-absorbed. We're drowning in our self-help, self-motivation, self-improvement, self-image, self-ad nauseum psychologizing that has brought us to be one of the most narcissistic nations in history. We're so concerned about our own personal pleasure that Most people under the age of 40, I think, just viewed what happened yesterday as some sort of personal inconvenience that has somehow damaged their uh, investment procedure because Wall Street has been affected. And even though they're angry about one thing or another, they have no real moral courage. Anger, revenge, resentment. Bitterness, hostility, those are mental attitude sins and that's no basis for doing anything. We have to understand that absolutes were violated. And that means that if we're going to maintain our freedoms as a nation, then believers are going to have to lead the way because we're the only ones who have 
absolutes. Christians have given priority to activism over evangelism. We've given priority to protest over Bible study. We've given priority over entertainment to getting into the Word. And as a result, Christianity is merely a superficial facade, a veneer of religiosity that has nothing to do with the Bible. As a nation, we have become consumed with materialism lust. We've been on a high ride, except for the last couple of years with the decline in the stock market, but we've been on a high ride of prosperity ever since World War II. It's seduced us. It's anesthetized us to the real issues facing us as believers and facing the world. We're more concerned about our future security, our retirement. We're concerned about keeping our jobs, paying our bills, than we are understanding the dynamics of doctrine in our life and how it affects the angelic conflict. Because all of this is related to the angelic conflict. If you go back and you study Islam, you study its origin, you realize that this young 27-year-old camel driver named Muhammad, who was probably manic-depressive, he heard things, it was probably demons, and he was sleeping in a cave in a jinn, according to his testimony, a jinn, that's the Arabic for a demon, appeared to him. The Spirit appeared to him and dictated the book of, of uh, the book of the Quran to him. I'm going to read the book of the Quran sometime. It's fascinating reading because according to Islam, there are only two groups of people: those who are the people of the house of peace and those who are in the house of war. We're not in the house of peace. See the word for in Arabic for peace is salam. S L M. Remember, Arabic is like Hebrew; it doesn't have vowels. It just has consonants. And in Hebrew, you have the same consonantal power, uh, pattern, S-L-M. Shalom means peace. Those who are in the house of peace are the Islams. Notice, what are the, vow- what are the consonants in Islam? S-L-M. That's what it comes from. Muslim, S-L-M. The M at the beginning is your typical M prefix in Semitic languages for a participle. See, it has to do with peace. See, they are not people of peace, though, because the God of Islam is not a God of peace. He's a God of war. So I've described many times in studying the Trinity, the God, Allah, is not a Trinitarian God and therefore cannot be a God of love. See, you read the Bible. You read, if you're a Jew or if you're a a Christian, you read the Bible, the emphasis is love. Jesus was asked by the Pharisees, what is the greatest commandment? He said, he summarized all the law, all 613 commandments. Number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And number two, love your neighbor as yourself. There's no command to love anybody in the Koran. In fact, the love is only mentioned 27 times in the book of Koran. Allah loves this, Allah loves that. Allah is not the same God as the Christian God. Allah is a different God. He was cobbled together by Muhammad from the, from the polytheistic moon, sun, star worshippers. That's usually what you have on most Arabic flags is a moon, the sun, I mean the moon and stars, or the sun, because they worship the pagan deities. And, you know, pagan deity by any other name is still a pagan deity. If you were to take, we've studied Baalism, And if you were to take the Canaanite religion with all of their gods and goddesses and you were to dump all of them but Baal and say, well, we only believe in one God and that's Baal, that doesn't make you a monotheist and that doesn't mean Baal is equivalent to Yahweh of the Bible. But see, that's essentially what Muhammad did. He got rid of all the 
all the extraneous gods and the paganism of the Arabs, and he boiled them all down and conflated them into one god and called it Allah. And they, when they, last year when we were in Kazakhstan and we heard them calling the faithful to prayer, the way the uh, English usually translated is Allah is great, but what it means is Allah is greater. Of course, the Bible, there's one person who claims to be greater than God, and who is that? I'll let you draw your own conclusions. You know, the same pattern is in, in, the, in, in the Mormon. I mean, if you look at what happened to Joseph Smith when the angel Moroni appeared to him and gave him the Book of Mormon, it, it's so similar to what happened in the, book of, in, the, in the Book of Quran. But you see, we're never taught these things. We're, we're so anesthetized by our news media that nobody ever understands what the real dynamics are. For example, in the Quran, in um, Surah 5:51, we read, O oh, you who believe, that's the Muslim faithful, you who believe, do not take the Jews and the Christians for friends. See, they're forbidden to have friends of Christians or Jews. Period. Why? Because they're supposed to exterminate them. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying next time you get gas, you go in and you find some... Arab working at the gas station that you punch his lights out because of what happened yesterday. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the fact that as Americans, we have to wake up to the real world that these Muslim countries out there are not secular, nice little secular countries with the same values that we have. They are religious-oriented countries. They have a religious mission based on the Koran, and that is, is to destroy the house of war. And that's you and me. That's anybody in America that is not a Muslim. And they will die in the process of... ...to paradise, according to their view, though I like to think about what happened yesterday, that as the pilots of those airplanes plunged into the World Trade Center, that they were ejected through the portals of hell and things got really hot for them. Oh, you who believe, do not take the Jews and the Christians for friends. They are friends of each other. And whoever amongst you takes them for a friend, then surely he is one of them. Notice, this is what the Quran says. Now, you may have some Muslim friend that doesn't understand this or doesn't seem to practice this, but either he's being disobedient to Allah in that case, or he's just an ignorant Muslim. But this is straight from the Quran. He says, surely Allah does not guide the unjust people. We are by nature unjust people. So these things are hidden from us. We are involved in a holy war, not from our side, but from their side. This is a religious war. There's a religious dimension to it. But the problem in America is that we have lost sight of the fact we can't understand. We watched George Stephanopoulos and these other talking heads on the morning talk shows, and they do not have a clue what it means to act on the basis of religious principle. And so they're just as confused about what's going on as they can possibly be. And as long as we have people in this country making policy and influencing people that do not understand the reality... See, we understand the realities because we know there's an angelic conflict. And we know there's a greater dimension. And that greater dimension is that Satan has a plan, and his plan is to destroy Israel, because in the destruction of Israel, he can show that God is incapable of bringing about his promises. So that's Satan's number one goal. And so he is doing everything he can to empower and to motivate any group, any religious system, in order to go after Israel. 
In our country, we have adopted Christian religion instead of biblical Christianity. There's all kinds of talk. Every time you see some new believer, they have all kinds of Christian verbiage they adopt, but there's no doctrine. We have Christians who are into all kinds of activities, activism and programs, but they don't know doctrine. Anytime you bring up doctrine, they seem to just want to argue about it. Nobody wants to learn any real doctrine. Theology is viewed as just another intellectual exercise. Too often subjective ritual takes place over reality. And today, at least for the last 15 years, we've got a rise of subjective mysticism affecting Christianity. Contemplative spirituality. A return to the mysticism of the early Middle Ages. Subjectivism and personal feeling and how you feel about God is substituted for a love for objective truth. And then we have rejected absolutes. We must remember several important principles as we face times like this. The first is, as goes the believer, so goes the nation. I've established that clearly. The second is that Jesus Christ controls history. This is what we see in Jeremiah chapter 27. Jeremiah 27 takes place in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah. This is right at the end, right before 586 B.C. when the nation goes out under the fifth cycle of discipline. In the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord to me, Make for yourself bonds and yokes. He's going to have a little, have a little uh, visual aid to communicate doctrine to the nation. Make for yourself bonds and yokes and put them on, the, on, on your neck. And send word to the king of Edom, to the king of Moab, to the king of the sons of Ammon, to the king of Tyre, to the king of Sidon, by the messengers who come to Jerusalem, to Zedekiah, king of Judah, and command them to go to their masters, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Thus you shall say to your masters, I have made the earth, the men and the beasts. This is God talking. I have made the earth, the men and the beasts, which are on the face of the earth, by my great power and by my outstretched arm. And I will give it to the one who is pleasing in my sight. And now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant. And we have studied that in terms of the, of the great statue in, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel 2. And we see that God is the God of history. He is the one who gives power from one nation to another. And when a nation goes negative, then God switches the power base. Turn back with me to Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah 23, we see the indictment of the clergy. The indictment of the clergy. And no nation's clergy should be more indicted than the clergy of this nation wherein we live. Jeremiah 23, verse 9. As for the prophets, God is indicting the nation's prophets. As for the prophets, my heart is broken within me. All my bones tremble. I have become like a drunken man, even like a man overcome with wine because of Yahweh and because of His holy words. For the land is full of adulterers. This is not simply talking about the spiritual unfaithfulness of the religious clergy, but it's talking about their immorality as well. For the land mourns because of the curse. They're already being cursed in the first four cycles of discipline. The pastures of the wilderness have dried up. Their course also is evil and their might is not right. For both prophet and priest are polluted. And the word there means to be defiled. They are spiritually defiled because of their carnality. They are deep in apostasy. Both prophet and priest are polluted. Even in my house I have found their wickedness, declares the Lord. Even in the temple is what he's talking about. Therefore, their way will be like slippery paths to them. They will be driven 
away into the gloom and fall down into it. This is their judgment. For I shall bring calamity upon them. The year of their punishment, declares the Lord. Moreover, among the prophets of Samaria, I saw an offensive thing. Verse 13. They prophesied by Baal and led my people Israel astray. Now, what was Baal? Baal was the fertility god of the Canaanites. Well, today we have our own version of fertility religion. It's called the prosperity gospel. And the prosperity gospel is taking this country by storm in one form or another, either through the silliness of the prayer of Jabez or through false prophets and false teachers like the one on the cover of the September 17th issue of Time magazine. The cover says, is this man the next Billy Graham? And it's a picture of a black preacher by the name of T.D. Jakes down in Texas. And the problem with T.D. Jakes, among other things, is he is, preaches a prosperity gospel, but he's also a heretic. If we read here the introduction to this article, it talks about him speaking to a group of 22,500 men in St. Petersburg, Florida. He's speaking on Genesis 1. Excuse me, he's talking about the creation, and he says, and God says, let us. And he goes on, let us. One God, but manifest three different ways. Father in creation, Son in redemption, Holy Spirit in regeneration. That's a direct quote. One God, but manifest in three different ways. That's the modalist heresy that was condemned as heresy by the Nicene Creed. God doesn't appear in three different ways. He is three different persons. This man does not believe in the Trinity. He is a heretic, and yet he is considered by Time Magazine to be the next Billy Graham. The man doesn't have a clue, and yet now we are promoting apostates because of their great rhetoric when they have apostate content. Well, that's the result of years of ecumenicalism, giving into the World Council of Churches and letting New Age ideas and psychology infiltrate the church. Among most evangelicals today, they have compromised the gospel and Bible doctrine by succumbing to the church growth movement. The more people we have, therefore, the more blessed we must be of God. And so people have given in to build bigger and better churches and have greater entertainment on the idea that if they have more people, then it must be doing something better for God. We've got diluted evangelism and worse, lordship salvation. Our teaching is anemic at best. It's heretical at worst. The clergy of America have abdicated their position of influence from Bible doctrine and teaching the truth. Jesus said you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The opposite is also true. If you don't know the truth, you will be enslaved by lies. So the issue today for the believer in this nation is what's your priority? How are you going to structure your life? Is doctrine going to be the number one priority? You see, for most of us, we're not in New York, we're not in Washington, we're not serving in the military, we're not in positions of overt power and prestige and influence. But we can have the greatest impact as believers because we're going to make doctrine the number one priority. That's what it's all about. It is, the nation will be preserved or defeated because of what believers do with the Word of God. We, the nation is blessed by association or cursed by association. And right now the pivot in this country, the remnant in this country is so minute that their negative volition... The, ne the amount of negative volition in this country from believers is the basis for God removing His blessing and His protection from this nation. So the greatest thing that we can do for our nation, for our families, for ourselves, is to put doctrine first.
with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at your word, to be challenged by it, to remember that the issue is your word. The issue is not our circumstances, our jobs, our careers, our families, while those things, entertainment, sports events, while those things aren't in of themselves wrong, the issue is what has the priority. We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That means we are to place our relationship with you above every other relationship. And how can we have a relationship with a God unless we know that God? And how can we know that God unless we have the Word? And how can we know the Word unless we have a pastor teacher who accurately teaches the Word? Only when we know the truth will we have true freedom indeed. And if we do not have the truth, it's the foundation of this nation, strengthening the core of believers in this nation, then we will become enslaved. Yesterday we saw many of our Many of our freedoms go up in smoke. That wasn't just smoke and debris from the collapsing towers. That was many of our freedoms evaporating because of what we'll have to give up over the coming years to maintain our national security. Father, we continue to pray for our nation. We pray for salvation of leaders who aren't saved. We pray for those who are saved that they would have the clear perspicacity of Scripture to guide them in their decision-making. Father, we too pray for anyone here who is unsure of their salvation, that they would take this opportunity to right now to make it sure and certain. All you need to do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Father, we pray that you would encourage us by your word that you are in control. Nothing happens apart from your control. And therefore, we can relax. We can have true peace and happiness and stability because we have a divine viewpoint framework. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.